AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Hey Stan, can you tell us more about the new Wasted Locker malware? Hey Kim, yes. Uh, I actually came across this uh, threat spotlight from Malwarebytes about Wasted Locker just a few days ago. And it was really interesting because we hear a lot about ransomware in general, uh, but there are a few differences with, I think, with this malware family or with this ransomware campaign uh, that kind of caught my eye. Um, the first thing is that it seems to be that if you were infected with this wasted locker ransomware, um, the, the ransom might be really, really high. So apparently uh, the, the group that's deploying this is asking for anywhere from like $500,000 all the way to like $10 million in some instances as a ransom to unlock your files. Um, and uh, this group apparently, according to Malwarebytes, uh, goes by the name of Evil Corp, which is an interesting reference to uh, Mr. Robot, uh, one of my all-time favorite, uh, you know, hacking shows. Um, and uh, they kind of point out a few interesting things about um, Evil Corp. Uh, apparently, Evil Corp used to use other malware previously, like Drydex and uh, BitPamer uh, ransomware, uh, but for some reason, they have now switched to Wasted Locker. And um, every victim that they attack, it appears that they build a custom version of this ransomware for that victim. Um, another unique thing, which you don't see it all the time, but apparently, um, they take like a hands-on approach when they're deploying this ransomware where they'll actually propagate within the network and they'll try to go after like backup systems so they can break or disable the backups before encrypting everything and then asking for the ransomware, uh, which is outside of what ransomware normally does. It seems like uh, these guys have found a way to, uh, you know, go just a little bit more to uh, probably ask for the higher ransoms um, uh, that they've been asking for reportedly. Um, now, with malware like Wasted Locker, you, you know me, I love learning more about malware, and I'm always curious, how do they get named? Um, and this one in particular got named uh, because of the file extension that it appends uh, to the end of the files that it encrypts. So it'll take like the victim name, and it'll take the word wasted and combine them, and that'll be the extension of the uh, encrypted files. So I'm just always curious, you know, how this stuff gets named, and apparently um, this is how um, uh, this one got its, uh, its name. Um, one interesting thing, again, about um, ransomware in general or about malware in general is, like, how does it spread? How does it get on your network? And according to Malwarebytes, uh, they've been seeing this ransomware spread through um, malicious uh, advertisements uh, on the on various websites. Um, and the advertisement might tell you, like, there's something wrong with your computer, maybe your memory, you're running out of memory, or something like that. And it'll ask you to download something. And once you download that, apparently that could be the gateway to eventually getting this, um, this malware in your, in your network or on your computer. Um, so it's very interesting because I kind of was hoping these kind of drive-bys would be 
done by now. Like, you know, brow there's a lot being done in browser security. You can like turn off notifications and do all kinds of things. So you kind of hope that people or users wouldn't be fooled by things like this, but apparently, you know, this is still uh, fairly active out there. So uh, I thought this was interesting because it's a little bit different than usual. Um, so I don't know what you think. What do you guys think? Yeah, so um, actually I had a, a thought, and you, brought, you, you touched on it a little here, Stan, where you said that, um, you know, this unlike typical ransomware that gets picked up usually by a phishing email or, you know, some other method of transport, this is actually picked up by a drive-by or a compromised website which is fairly unique for ransomware. Um, and digging a little into the article, I noticed it's a, it's a highly targeted uh, ransomware as well, right? And I guess that's where the whole high $500,000 to $1 million ransom notes come in, um, which makes me think that if it's kind of targeted and they are targeting specific compromised websites, then maybe they know what websites your company typically goes to which is a little frightening because that could also mean they're in there already. Maybe they've begun some form of infiltration. Maybe they're, they've breached the network some way. Um, so this gives the IR teams some crazy, you know, new place to look now. Like, hey, this is not just a one-off lucky shot that they got. Maybe somebody's in here. Maybe somebody's been taking notes and seeing where we're going. Um, and specifically compromising websites that we normally go to. Um, I think that's pretty unique. Yeah, the, the infiltration is definitely like a scary component of it. You know, the propagation, like how do they discover that where your backup servers are so they can disable them. That means mm -hmm. they probably do study the environment and make, you know, quick decisions about where to go. And it's, it definitely shows technical proficiency and probably I guess when they put such high ransoms, it's almost like they're valuing their work effort of all that they've right. had to do at such a high cost. Um, sure. And I guess it make it really hard for victims to deny paying the ransom because their backups might be disabled or, or working incorrectly or the backup system might have been disabled. So I have a thought about um, if they if they put such a high uh, amount uh, for the ransom, um, are they not concerned that they would be tracked, that the threat actors would be tracked, the cyber attribution of it all, or, um, you know, what, what do you think about that? You know what, that's a really good question. You 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 would think that in the criminal underworld you would want to kind of stay hidden and asking for so much money, it does seem like it would be like a giveaway. Like, where's all this money going? One interesting thing I wonder if, because I think the payments are in Bitcoin. I wonder if because it's in Bitcoin, there's a sense of anonymity, like it they wouldn't be discovered, um, and perhaps that's part of it. Um, which is, you know, we won't be found because we're using Bitcoin. Um, and then I wonder who could even pay such high ransoms. Um, I mean, even for small businesses, medium-sized businesses, I mean, large, any business, 500000 even is, is a lot of money. It's a, it's a good point to bring up because I do know that there are researchers out there that monitor the blockchain 
um, and they look for specific wallets that these known attackers are using because they tend to keep a couple around and they keep an eye on those wallets to see if there are any large transactions going through or just in general. Um, so yeah, there's, there's that chance that they won't get caught right away, but they're building a case maybe, right? I mean, there's always that chance. Yeah. I hope that the, you know, through that kind of research, these kinds of groups could be identified and hopefully that could be, because usually, at least I heard this a lot in movies, follow the money. And yeah, I go. guess following the money <laughs> ultimately leads to, you know, finding the people who are behind this. Um, yeah. So um, preventing like all this, you know, ransomware from um, taking effect. So really, I mean, I thought this was an interesting story and a, a lot of interesting pieces to it uh, as to how the malware propagates and uh, the kinds of really high ransom. Hey, Kim, I uh, hear Microsoft has some warnings out on uh, OAuth attacks. Uh, yes, yes, George. OAuth, the uh, open authorization um, that is used on the back end is a standard for authorization for the framework of token-based authorization on the internet. Well, um, they found that many um, malicious actors are out there um, pushing phishing emails, uh, targeting uh, consumers um, of Facebook, LinkedIn, Google, GitHub, whatever it may be, uh, even Microsoft, because it uses uh, the Microsoft Active Directory on the back end. Um, so um, they might be targeting using the actual legitimate uh, domains. So they sign up using a, a say, Azure.com or uh, CloudApp.com azure.net or whatever it may be um, to uh, target users, facebook.com, google.com. So, so the users uh, normally will just click. If they get something in the email, they'll click because you know normally they're clickbait uh, and they'll, so they'll click on these phishing emails uh, and it, it will um, uh, take all of their credentials and and on the back end, they can get into their cloud resources, anything that they have out in the cloud. Um, it started, um, researchers found this in, um, back in, I think, uh, December, November, December time. And um, now with the apps in OAuth, uh, OAuth 2.0, they're focusing more on, on this, this vulnerability uh, now that people are working from home what you should do and what they're, what Microsoft is requesting that users uh, do is generally like you're supposed to, you know, to hover over these particular, watch the domains that are coming into your email, watch those domains, hover over the links to know that they're actually, um, you know, legitimate um, links. Uh, if they're not, don't click on them. So it's a lot that are going through conventional email-based phishing uh, so as the remote working continues, um, I, I'd say that, you know, with Zoom, WebEx Teams, um, Microsoft Teams, all of the different um, applications that are, we are using from home, that people will be more mindful uh, of uh, the phishing attacks and how OAuth is, is being um, uh, used to uh, take their credentials and take over their uh, whole cloud uh, environment.
You know, I think it's easy to become a victim of just clicking through on emails, especially lately, because there's so many alerts you get all the time from a variety of places. Check this out. Click on this. Da, da, da. And even even legitimate uh, things right. that you have to do. Um, and now, you know, many of them do take you to um, authentications in the cloud. And for very well-themed uh, phishing pages, it can be really difficult to tell the difference uh, between, you know, what's real or what's fake because now you're not just looking for your company name or, you know, you're kind of like, okay, this could be Azure or this could be AWS or I'm authenticating through Facebook. So there's a lot where you could get really easily, I guess, tricked. Um, and you have, to, you have to be super vigilant these days more than ever uh, because we are, like you said, Kim, working all from home and uh, everything looks kind of strange. Now, I think it's also um, important to point out for organizations, um, when you are putting your authentication or authorization uh, out there into the cloud, make sure you retain good logging around who is authenticating into your platform, where are they coming from, um, how many failures there are, and things like that. Because if you don't do that, you're going to um, basically lose an entire, uh, you know, basically you're going to lose a lot of visibility into what's happening with authentications against these various platforms. For example, traditionally, if your Active Directory or your authentication platform was within your network, you probably had a lot of logging around that to make sure there's no, like, brute forcing. But now you just put that whole piece out there on the Internet. And if anyone is brute forcing that mechanism and you're not collecting logs around that by working with that cloud provider, you're going to be a little bit blind. Um, well, really, really blind to some of the attacks that are going on. Right, exactly. And, a, a lot, and another thing is to use multi-factor authentication. Whereas, you know, when you click and, and it takes you to this website, it will call your home for you to log back in there or, or you know, that that kind of thing or, you know, call send a text to your phone or for authentication or whatever it may be. Well, the only thing I was going to say is I actually recently started using authenticator apps in as many places as would allow it. I uh, just even to even less rely on my phone number or something like that. Um, and so all the authentications happen through this two-factor. Uh, the second factor being the app that, you know, authenticates me into the application. And I realized the other day um, that uh, Microsoft does actually call you as well as part of their second factor. Um, it's an interesting second factor. And like you, uh, I have plans on using an authenticator app now just because I, from a security standpoint, with SIM swapping, yeah, we want nothing to do with trying to get away from relying on SMS and calling. And just right. the fact of having to pick up the phone to log in and listen to a robot and, you know, have this process, um, yeah, it could be, could be something that would be annoying. But it's still secure. Um, I do recommend the authenticator as well. Microsoft has wrapped themselves up in so much of enterprise products. I mean, email, right, Office Docs, OneNote, everybody at some point is touching one of those, and it's it's so easy to just you know oh okay, here's that link. Let me just click log into my Azure or whichever, and uh, boom, you just gave them your access to the. So it's uh, it's a very interesting angle, and and using Microsoft is pretty slick because uh, there's so much 
You bring up a valid point about too much data being concentrated in one place, um, and it makes a really juicy target. Um, yeah. You know, especially as probably it's fair to say that, like, pretty much all of us are now associated with all these major companies and we have so much data out there that, you know, could be used for good, uh, data analytics, giving you what you need when you need it, but at the same time as a target for the bad guys um, to know more about you and what maybe they could do to trick you. Let's keep an eye on uh, all these phishing pages and let's not be duped, even though we get tons of alerts asking us all <laughs> to click on something and log in, uh, you know, the, the officially. Um, yep. You know, I guess the, the second lesson is make sure as you deploy these solutions into the cloud for authentication, you really have a good handle on how that gets logged, where that gets logged, and how you should be analyzing those logs for suspicious activity or authentications coming from locations you don't anticipate. Hey, George, uh, what do you have for us today? So, um, so yeah, this, there's, a, there's a new product, somewhat new, that Firefox created uh, about a year ago, I think, called Firefox Send. Um, so what this does, it gives you the ability to send files to another user um, slightly larger than what, what you would normally send via email. So you can go up to 2.5 gig um, on a file. What you do is you upload it to the Firefox cloud, right? And it encrypts it. It you know, offers you the ability to password protect it. And you give it a TTL. So you give it a time to live in the cloud. And it presents you with a link. And this link is good for one-time use. You provide that link to somebody, um, and they can download that file uh, encrypted and whether you password protected it or not. Um, and then as soon as that link is clicked and the file begins downloading, the link expires and they remove the file, supposedly, from their uh, repo. Um, so this, you know, I guess it was more of a trial than a, than a production thing, it seemed like, because guess what, right? This is an amazing tool to use, not just for good, but for bad. And they found out that um, a lot of malware was being transported this way. Since the, the, the link has an expiration, the file has an expiration, um, uh, a few uh, IR teams, started noticing in their logs that there were these strange-looking Firefox links, and the, what was happening was that two things were happening. So one, they were placing the malware in the cloud, and then when they were getting into the environment, they were downloading it from that link right onto the infected machine in the network and propagating, doing whatever they wanted to do. Um, one, of, one of the classic uh, malware was Earthsmith. Um, there was somebody took a screenshot and said, hey, look, <laughs> it looks like they used their SNP through Firefox Send um, and dropped it on one of our machines. Um, and another thing that I don't really see it being spoken about too much um, was I've seen only one article, I believe, that it was being used for possible exfil of data. Um, and since you don't need a Firefox account to use this, if you want to send the file up to one gigabyte, you don't need an account. It'll just, you could just generate the link and you can send it off. If you want to go up to 2.5, you need an account. But we all know accounts, I mean, they could be spoofed anyway, so it's, it's moot point. But they did, you know, they, they, there is a possibility of exfilling data. And you know that when they exfil data, 
you know, typically if they use raw or zip, they'll break it up into small chunks to not set off too many alarms or to make it easier for them to pull it away. In this case, one gigabyte, I think, is a pretty significant size, right, to pull some kind of data off of the network. And IR teams were finding it hard to track that back and to perform any kind of analysis on those links. And um, I think ZDNet and a few researchers got together and started noticing this malicious use of Firefox then, and right away Firefox responded with, we're taking the service down and we're gonna implement some controls. Um, and they admitted us slightly that they said, well, this was kind of like a trial. We wanted to see how the users were, were accepting to it or not. And, and it generated a lot of traffic and generated a lot of usage. Um, so I find it as an interesting, you know, and very interesting that this didn't take much time for a malicious use to be found on it, and I'm pretty curious, very curious to see how they expect to to, to lock this down if they do release it again. Um, because, as far as I'm concerned, I think for Xfil, this is a genius idea. Um, although I'm sure Firefox does some sort of logging on their end to see who pulled the file down. You know, uh, I don't know how privacy laws, depending on where you are, if they're allowed to disclose that data or if they even want to, but. Depending how big you are, maybe you'll get that data or maybe you won't. Um, but uh, I find it very interesting that it didn't take long for this to be used nefariously. Um, and I'm curious to see what they're going to do to protect this since it was sort of a successful file transfer name uh, for big files. It's amazing how fast adversaries um, like adapt to new technologies emerging, sometimes much faster than IR teams who have to discover it later as something that's being used, they're going to have to learn the same lessons that pretty much every single Dropbox-like site has learned over the past years where you can just upload any file and have somebody download it. The, the fact that, you know, Firefox is hosting it, I guess that's the key for incident response teams to, you know, it makes it difficult to identify suspicious activity to Firefox versus legitimate because it's also like, checking if Firefox is up to date. And there's a lot of like legitimate activity there. Um, so I think reinforces for me uh, even more how you have to look at your like proxy logs and make sure that you know the URI patterns um, that people are visiting um, so you can, you can see this type of behavior uh, that, hey, what are all these weird, you know, uplinks that are happening or uploads that are happening to Firefox? That shouldn't be the case. And I think they, they baited on the fact that most companies allow Firefox traffic to flow, right? And, and I'm not sure what the exact URI is for sending one of these, but uh, I'm sure that's actually, now that you bring that up, that could be a place where they could start. They can make it so that it's identifiable easily by proxies and you can blacklist it um, because who knows how this was, was appearing, right, in the proxy. Maybe it was just like a typical Firefox domain. Okay, so most proxies will let that fly. I think another thing to consider would be around DLP, data loss protection, like okay. thinking yeah. through, like, is your organization like legitimately using services like this and uploading stuff to the cloud, or are your employees doing that without you realizing it? I think those are all important questions to ask in like an enterprise setting or, you know, in, in really any business setting is what kind of data in general, maliciously or not, is being uploaded to these third-party services because 
this is another example, like with Kim's story, with the authentication, you're putting it out there. The same thing here with file storage, you're suddenly putting your files somewhere else where you're losing control over them. And I guess you have to be careful, um, you know, make sure that you understand that from a, your enterprise network perspective, how often is that happening? As far as the controls that they may put in place um, for, um, you know, locking this down, I, I, I think, you know, either, you know, some type of checksum could be in place uh, on, on, on the Firefox side. Uh, I know with Oracle, it's hard to, you know, to grab a link or download their um, from their repository uh, without authenticate proper authentication or you know the okay. link itself you can't get in there. So so cer certain um, controls may be able to be you know be uh, implemented on their side, but I think they just need to investigate more. Hey everyone, I have this week's internet weather. And so we'll start with our uh, top 10 uh, most ports report. And this is our way to understand scanning activity on the internet based on the top 10 ports that are being scanned um, and the changes there are from the week prior. So um, this is the data for yesterday's scanning activity. And you can see, um, if you've been watching the internet weather report for a while, that there's no new items here. Um, but I, I would like to highlight a few things um, that you know seem to kind of go up and down. So everyone knows port 443 TCP is widely used for SSL, and it's usually it's always in the top 10. This week I noticed there's a, a big change here. It went up six places to overtake port 23 TCP uh, and the others 445 TCP. And um, I was kind of thinking back and trying to figure out why that might be, and then I remembered. There's a, a big, big IP F5 vulnerability that was recently released, and I think there's a lot of people scanning this port to maybe try to find the, the management uh, interface on that, uh, on the F5s, uh, which uh, I guess if you're watching this, you know, make sure that uh, you've patched for that, and it is a very serious vulnerability. And going through the rest, you could see uh, port 23 TCP, which is associated with Telnet, is actually uh, commonly associated with scanning for vulnerable um, IoT-type devices like DVRs. Uh, 445 TCP is um, WannaCry-related, usually scanning, but it's sometimes scanning for open file shares and things of that nature. And some of the other items here are definitely interesting. Uh, you know, port 21 TCP is always getting scanned, but it seems like there was maybe um, renewed interest in that um, recently. Uh, so it's definitely something to watch out for. Hopefully in your own environment, you guys aren't running you know, FTP, uh, or if you are, uh, make sure that it's logged and protected. Um, and if it's possible, try to use um, SFTP uh, uh, for file sharing. Uh, so moving on uh, and looking at our top 10 most sources probing report, uh, we can see, uh, basically, this is the activity where we try to understand if there's a lot of devices looking for the same thing all at once. Uh, we usually use it to study like botnet-like behavior. And so here, uh, if you look carefully, you'll notice that, um, you know, ports like 445, 23, 2280, they're always getting scanned, uh, but, and they're always getting scanned by a lot of devices. Uh, but some of the th ports here, 
are fairly unique. So 8291 TCP and 8728 TCP, uh, we've looked at them previously in previous um, internet weather reports, and it looks like these are definitely um, top ports um, this week as they have been previously, and just wanted to just update you on some of the scanning activity there, so um, I'll show you some charts on it. Uh, but all the other ports here you can see are fairly related to either common ports that everybody is looking for or uh, ports associated with a norm, known warm uh, or threat like Mirai or um, possibly eternal blue-like threats like WannaCry. Uh, all right, so let's look at the activity for the two ports I think are fairly unique and, and pretty interesting, and it's this 8728 TCP and 8291 TCP. Now, we've looked at this in the past, and what we've learned is that these are ports associated with management interfaces for microtech devices. So this would be associated with like an administrative interface. You can log in with the username and password, and you can manage the microtech device, maybe upload firmware or change certain settings. There's even a tool out there that'll allow you to use um, the various APIs related to this uh, to go ahead and log into the microtech devices. So looking at the scan flow activity for the past 30 days, um, you could see um, that you know sometime here in uh, I guess uh, 15 days ago or so, uh, June uh, 30th or so, there was a huge uptick. Uh, in scanning activity on both of these ports, you can kind of see that they go up together um, in concert. Now, this is a stack chart, so it's a little bit of it, you know, is additive, the effect there. Uh, but you can still see that there's definitely the scanning is um, related on both of those ports, whereas actually prior to the 30th time frame, you could see it wasn't necessarily always um, so related. So this might indicate that both of these ports are being um, you know, sought after by the same adversary or the same threat or the same worm starting on um, June 30th. And we've seen similar patterns with these ports in the past. Would you say, Stan, that that could be because, uh, like, let's say a new re firmware revision came out where they were patching some vulnerabilities and they released that firmware patch that day or close to that day, so right away the attackers said, oh, let's bombard it to see if anybody is not patching or not upgrading? I think that's a very good way to think about it, um, and that certainly could be the case. Um, that's a very likely reason for something like this. Traditionally, we've seen a, a lot of brute forcing here, which wouldn't lend itself to that type of firmware exploitation uh, logic, but I think that's a very valid uh, possibility of, of what could be the case. Certainly, someone is looking for a bunch of, you know, for devices uh, probably to infect them or, or somehow overtake them. That's a good point, George. Now let's look at the, the number of scanners who are participating in this. This is also an interesting picture because basically you could see that at some point, uh, especially early there in June 30th or 29th, there's a lot of uh, scanning devices. So many thousands of IP addresses per hour uh, in concert doing the scanning. And again, you could see uh, the relationship between uh, like ports uh, 8728 and 8291, which we've seen before being related to the microtech uh, management boards. Um, so what's interesting is prior to that period, even though we've seen flow activity kind of go up and down previous days, um, you could see the number of scanners on those days uh, wasn't high. Maybe you can barely see like 
one or two devices, uh, which might indicate it could be an adversary testing, it could be a security researcher uh, who is scanning for these because maybe they've discovered some kind of a new vulnerability, maybe a new backdoor password or something like that. Uh, but pretty much since this huge spike, you could see the number of IP addresses has been um, very similarly, you know, going up and down uh, basically between the red and the blue here, um, <clears throat> all the way until now. Now, uh, I looked and in the last hour, there were like something like 6,000 IP addresses actively scanning for both of these ports. Uh, so definitely it does appear that, you know, there's some kind of a threat, a botnet-like threat uh, that's spreading out there and targeting uh, microtech devices. So uh, those particular devices are, um, you know, um, perimeter devices or uh, set in, into, you know, different networks. Uh, so are they uh, targeting uh, the, the open ports that are normally there or are they used for management ports or is it an open port for uh, a new, uh, say malware vulnerability that's out um, that that are you know you, that that's the open door for that particular malware. I think normally I would have said that it could be like some kind of a new protocol out there, but these specific two ports have been well documented to be for the management interface for the microtech routers, and there's different versions. And I don't believe they're intended to be out there like on the internet, um, but it seems like at least in some deployments, um, the adversaries have found that perhaps these are open. Um, and I know that there's definitely the concept that George mentioned of potential like firmware um, that could have been patched recently and the adversaries are now looking to exploit that vulnerability or uh, it could be the brute forcing that we've seen before uh, where adversaries are just trying to like get into the device, manage it, and maybe, you know, do something extra with the devices. Now, uh, a very good point, Kim, these should be, if you do have a microtech device, definitely make sure, or any router, don't leave the management ports or management access open on the WAN side of the router it's vital that you kind of make sure that that's only accessible on the LAN side or within your network and not on the outside of your network where just anybody can log in. Um, and especially if you're, you know, definitely don't be using default passwords or easy to guess passwords. Uh, you definitely would like, should be randomizing even the usernames that are being used because adversaries have like basically lists of really good passwords that people use all the time and they are successfully uh, brute forcing into into these devices uh, all the time actually. Uh, so uh, definitely if you know somebody who has microtech routers in their environment, uh, usually it's like small to medium sized businesses uh, or if you yourself are using microtech devices, uh, just make sure that you configure um, you know them properly, change the credentials, uh, keep them patched at George's point, but definitely don't expose these ports on the one side. Right. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.